I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Happy Easter. Hi, Carol. Good morning. So for today, we're at page 156, the splitting of the spirit or splitting of the spirit. We will engage with murder of the hero and the conception of the god. And there's some extraordinary synchronicity that you won't maybe be surprised about, but some extraordinary direct discussion of the death and resurrection of Christ in this. So we have a lot to explore today. Carol, do you want to set us off for where we left last week? Yes. So one, one of the things that I was really struck by as we came to the end last week, which we didn't talk about specifically, but which, which will bring us to, to the split and then the murder of the hero. Jung says, I would not have been able to see what was to come if I could not have seen it in myself that he says, I could not have seen it, not I did, I did see it or I had seen it. This idea of, the, of his understanding that the direction was in, not out. Yeah. And he, he talks about what, what this is a, quite a term, the bejeweled hero who has frightful power, the bringer of immeasurable goods and unbelievable pleasures, that the hero wants to drive to the solar heights. He wants to open up everything he can, but the depths show him he cannot. The greater ascent he desires requires greater virtue, which requires humility of incapacity, and it requires that he slay capacity, the bejeweled hero, for inner incapacity, he says, because heroism is the thought that this or that is good, or that this performance or that performance is good, and that the other is objectionable. And then he, he concludes by thinking about what is the nature of duality, of the duality in him, of his desire for goodness. We all desire to be good. And our difficulty and unwillingness to come to terms with what's hard and dark in ourselves and in life itself. And so this is so prescient for his times and so useful for us for what we're going through now. So that's where he, that's where we left off last week. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, it's such a good setup because I'm just going to do a quick recap before we dive into this of, of just Jung's psychology and <clears throat> what it has to teach us right now that when he speaks about the hero, it's, it's also we're getting into our personal psychology and the collective psychology. And Carol and I were speaking about this yesterday. It's a, such an important topic. Again, how we are all individually part of the collective. And so when our society is only honoring the egoic heights, right? And this is patriarchy, it's capitalism. It's these, this idea that we are never going to crash back down if we just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. He has a beautiful line. I won't be able to find it quickly here, but this beautiful line about the fact that heroes always fall because they never think that they're going to topple over from their own nonsense. And then they always do. And so he is determined in his wisdom to not be toppled unconsciously. I mean, he wants to participate in his toppling. That's really so much of what the Red Book is, is is he's, he's trying to stay a step ahead of it, saying, okay, I get what's going on here. I understand that I am a man at the heights of patriarchy, uh, at the heights of 
capitalism. I mean, the, again, he would use, he used patriarchy as a term a great deal, but white supremacy, all these things. He, he knew where he was socially. He's a Leo man, very comfortable in society. But he also understood mythology and he understood cult culture. And so if the, if the ego, the hero's journey, that, that egoic masculine self that is meant to leave the mother, step out of the collective unconscious and become an individual, that being becomes a human individual. But at some point, it has to re-engage with the shadow and the deeper self. And so that's really the journey of the Red Book. And it's, it's the chronicling of Jung's own journey, which is a chronicling then of what we all in society need to do and are maybe giving an, being given an opportunity to do in this moment in culture, again, where all of our ideals and all of our values are turning in on themselves and we're reassessing culture in such a dramatic way all of a sudden. Carol, you want to just add to that before I get into the themes of this particular section as they're related to all this? Well, I, I, if I frame it astrologically, and I think I'll be brief. In astrology, the zodiacal sign Capricorn is the sign of deep winter. It's the winter solstice and the early days of January. So it's the most yin time of year. It's the darkest time of year. And this is a little reductive, but all the light is being held conservatively inside the dark so that gestation, dormancy and gestation will produce something strong inside the dark for the return of the light. So Capricorn is associated with structures that hold things, hold the light inside the dark, hold them safely. So governments are Capricornian, our bones and teeth are Capricornian, our, our banks are Capricornian. So with the, with the astrological movements of the last two years, but especially of November, December, January, February of, of last year and this year, the contraction has been so intense that it has produced the collapse of the large structures that hold us. I mean, it's in the news every day and we're all a little obsessed with it about what's not working. But the effect of it is to turn us inward. And so on a political level, it's devolution from, the fed, from international agreements, federal agreements, state governance, local to our, neighbor, to our hearts, our neighborhoods and our hearts. And so this, the, Jung's um, understanding of a system that was collapsing is, um, an, is analog to our own and to our own time. Absolutely. Thank you. And the return to the heart. I mean, there's so much more of a sense of community and generosity <clears throat> happening now than there was like suddenly our entire culture is turned towards healing and connection it's just been stunning to me and so again for this journey of Jung's of returning to Eros next week's edition of of our salon gatherings is really one of my favorites and uh, you'll finally meet Salome in the red book so so we start to get into the the, the re-engagement with heart and embodiment there so, you know, it's, it's hard, it's really hard to summarize the themes of any of this, even again, just 20 pages. But the major themes that we wanted to speak to, there's this idea of civil war, we spoke to it a bit last week around the necessity to kill your own hero, so that you are the murderer and the murdered, which is the complete shift of values. Typologically, Jung speaks of it as the dominant function. It's typologically shifting from the dominant function to an auxiliary function or the inferior function so that you're getting to a rounded out self and a rounded out psyche versus just a single typological makeup. And that's that, you know, it's kind of an idea of a Renaissance man versus just the doctor, but it's, it's moving into the arts for Jung and, and all of those other areas. So there's this idea of the civil war, the, the idea of the hero, the idea of the murder of the hero, the necessity to do that. And then we get in, of course, to, to the resurrection, which is part of all this. So there's death and rebirth. What, why is that such a massive theme in, in global mythology? The fundamental idea of, of a circular existence, that it's not, and this is what Jung was trying to combat, it's not just this linear climb upwards that most of us in patriarchy or capitalism are trained towards the heights over and over we're trained towards the heights and Jung was certainly trained towards the heights and was succeeding at the heights but it's a return from the idea of a linear growth 
towards a circular existence where there's death and rebirth, there's seasons, there's change. And that is so much an astrological component of this. And then the last theme is, is the imitation of Christ, which is a huge part of the Red Book. Again, this idea of the imitation of Christ, but in Jung's own language, which is not various versions of asceticism or I don't know the words for it, but you know, the self-flagellation kind of imitation of Christ that's more popular. For Jung, it was imitate Christ's existence, which was fundamentally to live your own existence and to find that combination of the human and the divine within ourselves. That imitation of Christ is what Jung gets into deeply throughout this book. So we're going to read aloud a little, but again, Carol, what, what do you have to add to all this? Well, I, it, it's interesting. The, the other thing I, want, I feel that needs to be added here is that because we all want to be, uh, um, because of the culture and, and our, our history drives us towards transcendence, consciousness, and individuation. The, the idea of, uh, of coming to terms with everything that that is not, mm-hmm. and, and that of, of what we cannot own in ourselves, it's interesting to me, you know, if you spend, as we all are doing, a lot of time getting great messages about how to deal with this time, no one says, get down into your shit. You're supposed to think all of these lovely thoughts and, and, and the, the, our culture in this moment is trying to replicate staying solar and staying light mm-hmm. when the opportunity is not to become narcissistically involved with your own wounds or your own past, but to really see what else is there. And so his, his notion of scapegoating and sort of the, the, you know, the casting of lots to decide who gets to carry the dark stuff, who carries the hard stuff, like not me, I'm going to be reading poetry that inspires people. And so I think that it's really important to consider that because Jung was, was truly shattered by this, you know, uh, and I'll talk about that a little bit astrologically, that it isn't it isn't just coming to terms with the transcendent, it's coming to terms with, with what is emphatically not. Right, the shadow, right? Um, mm. and, and also that while this time may c- collectively be, I, I mean, I think that our, the collapse of our heroes within ourselves is our individual astrological journey and our individual journey of consciousness. And so there's different ways that's gonna show up for each of us in these times. Uh, but certainly something is happening collectively. But I think also that that there's sort of those big collapses in life, which the Red Book chronicles, but then there's all the adjustments, which I know I'm certainly making all the time right now, that there's the constant adjustments that don't require some deep dive into your shadow that takes months and you want to die all the time. And yeah. right. Um, but that you, but that we're, we're finding those adjustments as well, where you can, I, you can engage with your, that your here, your reborn hero at that point is strong enough to deal with the shit without being completely collapsed by it. Yes. Nice. Right? Really nicely said. That's why I say it's not a narcissistic involvement, but it's like, this too, and not only individually, but in the collective of, of, you know, of not trying to blame other, other, other people for the situation we find ourselves in. Right. And so that's, that's where we really begin, right? On, so this is page 153. This is actually last, last section, but we wanted to bring it in to set things up. I may have read this last week, but I'm going to read it again. So this is the end of 153 here. But I ask you, he says, when do men fall on their brothers with mighty weapons and bloody acts? They do such if they do not know that their brother is themselves. They themselves are sacrificers, but they mutually do the service of sacrifice. They must all sacrifice each other since the time has not yet come when man puts the bloody knife into himself in order to sacrifice the one he kills in his brother. But whom do people kill? They kill the noble, the brave, the heroes. They take aim at these and do not know that with these they mean themselves. They should sacrifice the hero in themselves, and because they do not know this, they kill their courageous brother. So Jung has this story of Siegfried, um, the murder of the hero, 
The Murder of the Hero is the story of Jung killing the blonde and blue-eyed German hero or watching him be murdered. So I'll read this bit on page 163. And, and Carol, jump in any time here, okay? So he says, oh, that Siegfried, the blonde and blue-eyed, the German hero had to fall by my hand, the most loyal and courageous. He had everything in himself that I treasured as the greater and more beautiful. He was my power, my boldness, my pride. I would have gone under in the same battle, and so only assassination was left to me. If I wanted to go on living, it could only be through trickery and cunning. And then down below, what does Siegfried mean for the Germans? And remember, this is, what, 1914, right? 1913. Um, 1913. So this is far preceding Nazis and Hitler's message to the Germans, right? This is far preceding that, but it's the same basic ill of the desire to elevate this hero instead of understand that he's falling and needs to fall that it isn't about trying to continue to elevate and, and destroying everything in order to make that happen. But it's to say there are times when our values need to die to give way to something new to be born. So he said, what, what does Siegfried mean for the Germans? What does it tell us that the Germans su- suffer Siegfried's death? That is why I almost preferred to kill myself in order to spare him. But I wanted to go on living with a new God. So I'll continue here because we get into the Easter stuff, but with Jung's own take, okay? So starting 164 here. After death on the cross, Christ went into the underworld and became hell. So he took on the form of the Antichrist, the dragon. The image of the Antichrist, which has come down to us from the ancients, announces the new God, whose coming the ancients had foreseen. Gods are unavoidable. The more you flee from the God, the more surely you fall into his hand. The rain is the great stream of tears that will come over the peoples. The tearful flood of released tension after the constriction of death had encumbered the peoples with horrific force. It is the mourning of the dead in me which precedes burial and rebirth. The rain is the fructifying of the earth. It begets the new wheat, the young germinating God. I'm going to skip over here to a little piece from 166 and then to 167. Actually, I'll read all of this 166 and 167. It's a little long, but here we go. When my prince had fallen, the spirit of the depths opened my vision and let me become aware of the birth of the new God. The divine child approached me out of the terrible ambiguity, the hateful, beautiful, the evil, good, the laughable, serious, the sick, healthy, the inhumane human, and the ungodly godly. I understood that the God whom we seek in the absolute was not to be found in absolute beauty, goodness, seriousness, elevation, humanity, or even in godliness, once the God was there. I understood that the new God would be in the relative. If the God is absolute beauty and goodness, how should he encompass the fullness of life, which is beautiful and hateful? good and evil, laughable and serious, human and inhumane. How can, how can man live in the womb of the God if the Godhead himself only attends only to one half of him? If we have risen near the heights of good and evil, then our badness and hatefulness lie in the most extreme torment. Man's torment is so great and the air of the heights so weak that he can hardly live anymore. The good and the beautiful freeze to the ice of the absolute idea and the bad and hateful become mud puddles full of crazy life. Therefore, after his death, Christ had to journey to hell. Otherwise, the ascent to heaven would have become impossible for him. Christ first had to become his antichrist, his other, his underworldly brother. No one knows what happened during the three days Christ was in hell. I have experienced it. The men of yours said that he had preached there to the deceased. What they say is true, but do you know how this happened? It was folly and monkey business, an atrocious hell's masquerade of the holiest mysteries. How else could Christ have saved his antichrist? Read the unknown books of the ancients and you will learn much from them. Notice that Christ did not remain in hell, but rose to the heights of the beyond. 
Our conviction of the value of the good and beautiful has become strong and unshakable. That is why life can extend beyond this and still fulfill everything that lay bound and yearning. But the bound and yearning is also, also the hateful and bad. Are you again indignant about the hateful and the bad? We're going to get into the rebirth a little later, which is a beautiful section. But, but just this contemplation of the Taoism, the fundamental Taoism of Jung's psychology, the fundamental expectation, necessity to find union between the good and the bad. And, and some things I was reading, I just want to say this as the, the psychotherapist in me, the, uh, you know, that, that often when we have been, for a lot of people who have never gotten to the heights of society and have never experienced themselves there, the shadow is really the hero, ironically. And so it flips it a bit, but I think it's a really important thing to, to kind of add to this, that if we are not patriarchs at the top of society, what we need to reclaim is our goodness, ironically. What we need to reclaim is the capacity that we aren't shit, that we are in fact beautiful and good. And Jung had to do the opposite in a way to augment his kind of ferocious masculinity that was going to take over. And he knew and saw was taking over many of his patients and colleagues and friends in the whole world, right? He saw that in the German war. So this isn't always just about reclaiming the shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, re really nicely said. And I, I, I think this might be a good point to take a look at Jung's chart. Brilliant. So this is in the center circle is Jung's horoscope. And in this outer circle is the time of these visions and these inner dialogues. And here is Jung's sun, the solar sun, the S-U-N sun. And it's sitting right on the part of the horoscope, the descendant that could um, be the psychological equivalent of shadow territory. If this part is the part of the horoscope where the sun is rising in relationship to the birth point, this is the place where it's setting. And in fact, he was born at 7.29 p.m. So here is the sun setting in the west at the time that he's born. It's in the sign Leo, which is the sign of the king, of the hero. And this idea that nature has been laboring since deep, deep winter to bring forth new life. And so he's, he's born into a geography and a time and a culture in which he, he is the hero. And the, uh, so a part of, of what this is about, this, the solar principle at work in the collective is that as time is passing, it is shocking his insight, his rising sign. It's shocking his awareness about his solar nature, about his heart, about what he's built for himself, about what he assumes about himself, about how he takes his place in the larger culture from himself. And I just want to observe parenthetically about this, that anybody who has a sun sign or a major planet, a moon, or even generational signatures at the first 10 degrees of the sign Taurus, so approximately from April 20th to um, April 30th, anyone who has planets in Leo, the first 10 degrees of Leo, April, uh, approximately July 20th to July 30th, anyone who has a very strong signature in Scorpio, um, October 20th to October 30th, and a strong signature in Aquarius, so uh, January 20th to January 30th, we are in a time in which the planet Uranus is in the early degrees of Aquarius, and we literally are recapitulating in a very interesting way Jung's experience of having to come to terms with a revolution around the solar principle. And so this idea that that the, in, in a astrological iconography, Uranus is outside the system. It was discovered with the telescope and was named by its discoverer, Herschel, for Saturn's father as something that for thousands of years since we were contained in a Saturnian world, to discover something beyond that world in the cosmos was to go 
earlier and older. And so Uranus has, in its some 300 plus years that astrologers have thought about it, has come to mean the disruptor or the uh, illuminator or the radical or the heretical, uh, just this idea of outside the system. So here is Jung in his shadowed solar self, this assumption of kingship in a way, of his Leonine nature of time radicalizing him through and looking at the whole world and looking at his place in the whole world. And this is precipitating the split. You know, I mean, we could even call this a split. This, this is an, an inner civil war, but he was also seeing it in the outer world. He was seeing war in the outer world and moving back and forth from his own psychology to the larger collective psychology uh, in terms of how, how do I come to the new world order? And that one of the things that I, that I came across as I was thinking about this was older, this idea of the death of the old and the, the rebirth of the possible out of the death of the old is, is much, much older than the Christian story. It has roots in certainly in the Sumerian and Mesopotamian world, all across the Egyptian world, the, the myths about Osiris. And, and as it comes from the Mediterranean up into European consciousness, one of the roots was Mithraic and Gnostic. And I ran across this really interesting early idea of the S-U-N sun, of the life-giving, undefeatable, potent, solar principle. Um, it talks about the old Orphic culture. The old Orphic cosmo cosmology made its appearance, appearance everywhere. The sun is the supreme cosmic force, the highest god of this world, and also as the ultimate sphere encompassing the cosmos, the transcendent god. It's the good spirit of light which measures the seasons and controls the temporal destiny of the world, the aeon. As Helios, he's represented during this period as a serpent, everywhere related to the four winds, the four quarters of the cosmos and the four seasons, life engendering winds. In Orphic theology, the serpent is celestial, the sphere of the sun, Fames, Helios. It's the universal god, Pan, moving the whole cosmos in harmonious circles. The Christian cosmos, which is Jung's cosmos, can be shown to be directly related both formally and conceptually to that older Orphic cosmos. In the Dionysian mysteries, Dionysus is hailed as the bridegroom and the new light. And the mystai, the, those devotees, undergo the same experience as their God, so that they die with him, are buried with him, are reborn with him, and are resurrected with him. So this... Jung is bringing this solar principle in his nature to bear and into consideration as, the, as an, an larger uh, external force. The spirit of the depths is cracking him open to another possibility about the, the, the solar nature. Thank you, Carol, so much. Can you, just for folks taking notes, I'm sure people are going to be interested, can you repeat that? first 10 degrees of Leo, Taurus, etc. Yes. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so what we're looking at here is this symbol, Taurus, this symbol, Leo, this symbol, Scorpio, and this symbol, Aquarius, are points in the zodiacal year, in the seasonal round, in which something is coming into form, that after having been imagined or opened, it comes into form, and then in its formation, then it is, is edited or, or analyzed or goes into a betweenness place before its rebirth. I mean, the whole cycle of the zodiac is very much about this idea. So Taurus is between April 20th and April 30th, the first 10 degrees of the sign Taurus. So anyone born between April 20th and April 30th, anyone born as a, as with things in Leo between... Um, August to 20, excuse me, between July 20th and July 30th, 
early degrees of Scorpio, which is October 20th to October 30th, and the first 10 degrees of Aquarius, January 20th to January 30th, this, because of the, where we are the, today, we are at, at, and all of us who have something in these early degrees of these fixed signs are being challenged by the heretic to a new order. So one of the ways I think about the horoscope is it's all us. We have all of it in right. us. We have the zodiacal, we have the whole geography, ourselves as a whole geography, ourselves as a whole round of seasons and activity and movement in seasons. And so it's touching all of us in a particular way, but some people will be more profoundly affected by this time than others in terms of the radicalization of systems. You know, I, in all of this, just your extraordinary exposition of the astrology, I'm holding down the, I don't know much about astrology camp of our community, okay? So just want to say, to really brass tacks here, the, the dates you just read about the first t 10 degrees or so of each of those signs, that's just related to somebody's sun sign, right? That sort of... Or, well, if you, have, if you have your horoscope, some people may have a moon in the early degrees of that right. sign. Some right. people may have, but generally speaking, this is the territory that's being affected the, the territories of of the seasonal round and in particular how they're being affected is that there is this wind that's blowing so to use the orphic idea of the generative power of the winds there are winds that are blowing that are forcing us to consider and radicalize systems that we have built for ourselves so there's a larger energy in which the larger systems generally are are contracting and are not sufficient to the task but at the same time the call to a kind of revolution and a radicalization of what we ourselves have built is also at hand so it's very much it's not exactly the same as Jung's time but it's one of the reasons you and I got into this in the first place is you can't help but notice from an astrological point of view that here we are again at a higher point on the spiral of, of the large collapse of systems and the call to individual transformation. Right. So I'm going to do a really basic recap of, but I want you to correct me. Okay. But again, this is just for the, the no lessers of us. Okay. Um, uh, that there's two major astrological uh, events, so to speak, happening right now that are similar to Jung's. That's the, the Pluto-Saturn conjunction and all the activity that's currently happening in, in Capricorn and that was happening in Cancer when Jung was going through this and yes. the world was going through this. Yes. So that's, that's the Saturn-Pluto conjunction and, and that whole traffic jam in Capricorn. So people can look to that in their own charts, what you have in Capricorn, Yes. And then there's yes. all the oppositions and squares, right? Yes. The other is Uranus having moved into Taurus sometime last year. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's the Uranus in Taurus and the, and the um, Pluto and Saturn and Capricorn. So again, we're just, because I think we're going back and forth in our conversations around these major elements, how they affected Jung, how they were affecting the world and simultaneously for all of us right now. Yes, and so let me make it in a way um, not, to be, not to be reductive, but we can imagine that there are different weather systems in different parts of our world. Mm -hmm. It can be raining at the coast and be sunny in the valley. And so that's part of what astrology can describe is current events. We even call it C-U-R-R-E-N-T, the moving events that we all live in. And so we have two different weather systems moving at the same time and but but that they both have to do with the collapse of of systems the capricorn event that and and also not just the collapse of events but what really works and what doesn't you know because some things of course obviously are still standing even though there has been this incredible contraction that's one weather event but at the same time that a system is under duress and is either going to stand or is going to collapse, which, which creates a response in all of us. There's another weather event, which is the radicalization of customary systems. And I also think Uranus and Taurus, and we've talked about this, is 
it affects each of us personally, but it's really a call to come back down to earth to me, to, to that, that, you know, I have said this before, if, if the great motherness of the world has let her children make their own mistakes, she's finally looked at us and said, that's enough. And as, as bringing us to, you have, need to come to a different kind of relationship with this Newtonian world that you live in, with the reality of resources and sustainability and what is finite, which reminds me, the other thing that is so interesting to me about this particular section of the Red Book is you can feel Jung understanding the, that there is this world that we live in and that there is a world of possibility. Yeah. And this is what leads to his conversations with Pauli about, you know, the nature of the Newtonian and quantum worlds and, and, and what is synchronicity and how does, an individual's, how does an individual's consciousness change the whole. So um, that's all we, in this. Yeah, we were speaking about that again a bit yesterday that it's just related to all of this, of the necessity for each of us it's the clean your own house stuff. Yeah. Um, but that if you get right with yourself, and for me in, in Jungian language, that's really the development of the ego consciousness. It's the, it's the natural development out of childhood, then the natural initiation that is supposed to take place, but we have no guidance for. That's really where my psychotherapeutic work and my writing primarily is focused is the complete lack of understanding that that at some point the ego has to both become strong and then it has to die so that it can be reborn into a deeper relationship with the archetypal mother and the feminine, but of course the entire world and the everything. It's this idea of sort of the adolescent boy being that Mars heroic energy. It needs to at some point go, oh, right, I didn't create myself. I am not actually completely individual and separate from everything. It's, oh, right, I came from something, but now I need to be able to have the capacity to turn back around and say, I see you. So that there's a mutual seeing, right? There's a mutual seeing, and that's the hero and the divine. That's that sense of connection and relationship. But before we can truly be in relationship with each other, before we can truly pull back the projections that we put on each other, that we put on the whole world before we can fully understand that the brother we hate in Jung's language is actually part of ourselves that needs to get relativized. Yeah. Uh, we can't really see each other. We can't really see each other or the world or consciousness or God. And again, the God stuff, and this gets into the gender of the red book and, and all of our consciousness, but Jung's always going back and forth about what the gender of God is throughout the red book. And for me, it's really some tremendous witnessing of the archetypal mother. Not that we need to gender it, but that feels more true to me. That may be because of my body. I don't know. So, but it's this sense of how to be both the individual and, and, and I think, and the collective, and Carol, I'm just really feeling today as you speak about the archetypal language, how for Jung, or rather the astrological language, that for Jung, astrology helped him to mirror what he was already seeing happening in his patient's dreams and himself. It helped give him this language of synchronicity or this language of the larger consciousness because it was happening so individually for him and he was seeing it happening so individually for his clients. There was this kind of inner outer relationship that yes. he didn't need astrology to understand from the get go what was happening, but it immediately gave him another language to mirror all the transformations that were unfolding. No, yeah. Not, not only that, but I, I keep thinking about, that with his great intelligence and fierce heart, that the, the reality of, it's like Arjuna at the beginning of the Upanishads, I'm going to kill my brother, you know, and it's me, he's me. And, and what a shock. I mean, that's Uranus is, another good word for Uranus is shock. What a shock that is for, for that person to have been brought to this and, and resisted it and then didn't, and then went straight there. Mm -hmm. You know, just the, the kind of, um, of bravery and intention and devotion to the, to the task of this. It just, you know, a deep bow of respect. And not a Christian language. I mean, any of this, right? This is, mm -hmm. Jung, this is Jung really 
again, mm -hmm. seeking the more Eastern or the more, da more Taoist approach or Gnostic. I mean, what was left out of Christianity when it got edited down by patriarchy, yeah. by Peter and all the rest. And we can get into that another time too, right? So Carol, what do you think? I'm going to read 171 and part of maybe 173, and then we'll open it right. up to questions. So right. this is really getting into the rebirth, right? So again, you can't, there's death without rebirth is trauma. I mean, it's either literal death or it's, it's post-traumatic stress disorder where where there is death and dysfunction and trauma and chaos, and it never gets to the point of coming back out of hell. It's just the pain of our psyches stuck in the, in the muck and grief and stress, but without finding redemption. Um, and so you, uh, Marie-Louise von Franz has, has just a stunning little book on this, if people are interested, called The Redemption Motif in Fairy Tales. And, and it's such a critical point to me because it's, I talk about it as the difference between a, a, a ghost story and a fairy tale, you know, or a horror film and, and um, true mythology, which is there's often gruesome. I mean, you think of Bluebeard or, you know, anything, there's often gruesome, bizarre stuff that goes on in fairy tales, but it's the redemption that gets to the rebirth that is where the new life is, where the new sense of insight or connection to instincts or psyche or the feminine comes from. So Jung here is going from the death of Christ and, and descent into hell, which is his reading of this, and the return as the true new birth. So page 171, <clears throat> I'll read most of this, I think. Listen for gender throughout this as well. When the hero was slain and the meaning recognized in the absurdity, when all tension came rushing down from gravid clouds, when everything had become cowardly and looked to its own rescue, I became aware of the birth of the God. Opposing me, the God sank into my heart when I was confused by mockery and worship, by grief and laughter, by yes and no. The one arose from the melting together of the two. He was born as a child from my own human soul, which had conceived him with resistance like a virgin. Thus it corresponds to the image that the ancients have given to us. But when the mother, my soul, was pregnant with the God, I did not know it. It even seemed to me as if my soul herself was the God, although he lived only in her body. And thus the image of the ancients is fulfilled. I pursued my soul to kill the child in it. For I am also the worst enemy of my God. But I also recognize that my enmity is decided upon in the God. He is mockery and hate and anger, since this is also a way of life. I must say that the God could not come into being before the hero had been slain. The hero, as we understand him, has become an enemy of the God, since the hero is perfection. The gods envy the perfection of man because perfection has no need of the gods. But since no one is perfect, we need the gods. The gods love perfection because it is the total way of life, but the gods are not with him who wishes to be perfect. Because he is an imitation of perfection. And then I'm going to read a little of, of 173. So you arrive at him in yourself only through yourself seizing you. It seizes you in the advancement of your life. The hero must fall for the sake of our redemption, since he is the model and demands imitation. But the measure of imitation is fulfilled. We should become reconciled to solitude in ourselves and to the God outside of us. If we enter into the solitude, then the life of the God begins. If we are in ourselves, then the space around us is free, but filled by the God. Our relations to men go through this empty space and also through the God, but earlier it went through selfishness since we were outside ourselves. Therefore, the Spirit foretold to me that the cold of outer space will spread across the earth. With this, he showed me in an image that the God will step between men and drive every individual with the whip of icy cold to the warmth of his own monastic hearth, because people were beside themselves going into raptures like madmen. Selfish desire ultimately desires itself. You find yourself in your desire, so do not say that desire is vain. That's an incredibly important point for our next section and really the whole Red Book as we explore Jung's understanding of 
of desire and love. He later refers to it more as love. You find in yourself your desire, so do not say that desire is vain. If you desire yourself, you produce the divine son in your embrace with yourself. Your desire is the father of the God. Yourself is the mother of the God, but the son is the new God, your master. And he changes gender stuff again throughout the whole book. So just be aware of all those places the gender st- gets shifted and changed and throughout his whole work. I'll just finish this, this page here. If you embrace yourself, then it will appear to you as if the world has become cold and empty. The coming God moves into this emptiness. If you are in your solitude and all the space around you has become cold and unending, then you have moved far from men. And at the same time, you have come near to them as never before. Selfish desire only apparently led you to men, but in reality, it led you away from them and in the end to yourself, which to you and to others was the most remote. But now, if you are in solitude, your God leads you to the God of others and through that to the true neighbor, to the neighbor of the self in others. All right, I'm going to finish the section just because there's another one more paragraph. So turn the page and then, and then we'll get to next week's reading and we'll open it up for questions. Okay. If you are in yourself, you become aware of your incapacity. You will see how little capable you are of imitating the heroes and of being a hero yourself. So you will no longer force others to become heroes. Like you, they suffer from incapacity. Incapacity too wants to live but it will overthrow your gods. All right, Carol, anything before we open it up? Thoughts? No, that's so good. It's really just, I don't every time. (laughs) If people want to ask questions or share stuff that's coming up for you, please feel free. Okay, Nan. Okay, hi. (laughs) Good to see you in your green sweater. Um, yes, it's my grandmother knitted this. My Jewish grandmother, uh, an Easter sweater over there. Yeah, it's the time for green sweaters. Yeah. So this is this kind of a hard question because I don't know quite know how to articulate it. But it's it's that um, both using whether it's using astrology or the seasons or the coming around to things versus being in a place where we don't know when the season will end mm. and being willing to wait there. It's kind of like with T.S. Eliot's wait without hope and kind of really feeling just kind of an abandonment to, to the emotion and even to the fear. And so when I, when I hear the discussion of Jung you know, recording all this, I'm assuming that he's looking back on his experience and maybe looking back on the notes that he wrote while he was going through this. And if you can find a question in that to answer, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> I'll tell you my, my brief response is that, and the astrology talks about this and philosophy talks about this and religion talks about this, that there is this world that can be known and that can be measured and that is in form and that we live in this world, but that there is another, there is another way to be that intersects with this world. And that I think what Jung discovered is that when you surrender or abandon, as you say, to, to, to be forlorn or to be desperate or frightened, and in a way hopeless to surrender to that, that that, that invites the possibility of something else, not to save ourselves. It's not redemptive, but it is to admit that we do not control this world, that, that this mechanical world of knowability, and that includes astrology. This means this, and now it's time to do that. And, you know, and what I say to my clients is the, the horoscope describes both how we are here and in time and in matter, but it also contains what's implicit in it is a portal to the infinite. And I think that's what your question is getting at, is how do you live in both of those worlds at the same time? What part of how you hold this material 
time-bound world is in relationship to all possibility. And not to fabricate it or to manufacture it or to try and make it happen the way you want to happen, but to truly, as Jung did, surrender what it is that you've built and still live here, still be here, and admit another possibility. And, and what later is the conversation between what I'm coming to understand is the Newtonian world and the quantum world, the world that can be measured and the world of all possibility and the paradox of living in both those worlds at the same time. And I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that was, that's what I heard is how do, how do we do that? How do we be in this world that we've built and its limitations and what it brings us to and what it forces us into and that when we're forced into it, what else opens up? Not in a redemptive way, but in a, with a way of possibility. And Nan, I'll throw some stuff at you too, but do you want to say anything to Carol before? Well, yeah, let me just say one thing. Yes, I think, I think Carol really understood um, where the question was and where some of the answer anyway was. There's an old, old song from the 20s, something about how the portal opens up for us poor mortals. Mm. <laughs> it's just it's the ability to rhyme mortal and portal and portal (laughs) (laughs) so yes Saki go ahead thank you yeah you know I mean I first want to just speak to your the sort of Jungian historian in me and then I'll I'll sort of respond relatively briefly as the psychotherapist this book and really I'm not going to hold up the large large version right this book and the facsimile version, all of this text that has been carefully written, both composed and then the calligraphy and the paintings, that was done over years and years. But he's, he's digesting all of that from original visions. And so there's different ways, and the introduction to the Red Book gets into this very beautifully, and the more you read it, you can see the various layers that are in there, that it's not that he was writing this down straight away there was some digestion but it also wasn't it wasn't digested the way that you know the rest of his writing really is into psychological thought so in any case there's different time scale to the red book does that answer that part of your question yes okay yes I'll just say briefly again it's sort of something I said earlier but the psychotherapist in me wants to really kind of make sure that we all understand this larger point which is our journey is not Jung's journey And even though we are really emphasizing the necessity of the descent, that we've, we understand throughout human history that there's actually been, whether it's for men and women or for the East and the West, there's often been two distinct versions of initiation or transformation. There's the up and the down, there's the in and the out, and they've been prescribed to you know, different communities. Again, in the East, the idea of Kundalini yoga is the, the rising of the Kundalini. Jung's work is very much the lowering. And for Jung, it was Westerners have to go down into their bodies and Easterners are transcending. We know that a, a female initiation ceremonies were often down into the earth and back up. Male initiation ceremonies were often out into the world and then back. So it's important, I think, for all of us to also fundamentally assess where we're at and that there are times we need to come out versus just continue to sink back down deeper and deeper, that sometimes building up the willpower to get out is the transformation and the transcendence, not the continued sinking down into the depths, which can kill us. You know, there's grief and there's pain and there's depression and there's hell that again without any form of redemption coming from psyche or from the world or from our own agency is absolutely contraindicated for well-being so that's what comes from me in hearing just the necessity of appreciating this is not always just about sinking down no and that that's that it's i think nan what your question is very much about which is is what in a way what what's the machinery of that the how and yeah and I, th- and I think that you, in a, in a way, it isn't that there aren't a lot of other writers, thinkers, beings, artists, 
because last week we emphasized creativity and, and Jung's understanding of image. And, and as you get deeper and deeper into the Red Book, you get away from all the language, all the pages and pages of script. And now all of a sudden these images are blooming and that the images are freighted. And so that, that you know, how do you be with it is sometimes, that, that, that that's part of the machinery too, about how you be present with something. Which is such an individual journey, right? We're just exploring Jung, so. Okay, we have, thank you, Nan. So Diane, did you still have a question? Yes, um, first I just wanted to thank you so much for this salon. It's really excellent, and I think we really need it right now. So um, just a couple comments. You started off with uh, Kill Your Hero, and I was, and you talked about it in terms of Jung's journey and our own. And I was thinking that um, this idea that you give birth to the old in a new time, and I wondered if maybe some of what's coming up is um, our definition of hero is changing. Beautiful. So it was you know, always, well, recently it's been masculine, the masculine hero, and it's been top down. And right now our heroes are nurses and doctors and the people who shop for us and drivers. And I thought we talk about them as heroes because they are. Mm -hmm. And that maybe it's what's new is a new definition coming into being about what makes a hero. Yes. Um, And also... The fact is, I was thinking about the age of Aquarius. It's very much about being individual water carriers. Mm -hmm. And that, again, no one's going to come save us. We're all saving ourselves. If we don't each do our part, the curve won't go down, as they say. Mm -hmm. So that just really feels like the age of Aquarius. And then lastly, I was thinking if, you know, again, looking for leadership from the White House, it's so absent. But if you look at national leadership, You have two um, people who have been off in obscure places studying viruses, you know, Burks and Fauci, a man and a woman sharing the stage. I think that's very exciting. And we listen to their every words and a redefinition of heroes. So just wonder what you thought about that. It's very much about that as the large systems collapse, we have to go local not only come all the way into our own hearts, but I think about what is, you know, I, I live in a, I, I'm so lucky to live in the most wonderful neighborhood here in, or in Portland, Oregon. We all know each other. We know each other's children. We have, uh, we're, we're all connected and that we all can count on each other. And that, um, that's been the, the, the case. I mean, I have lived in this neighborhood for 15 years, but in the last five years, the neighborhood is drawn increasingly closer and closer together, which is, which is, I think, what to, to your point about where the heroes are. I I, th- I hear Tina Turner's voice in my head back in the Mad Max movies, singing, "We don't need another hero," and that is, you know, the the return of the of the distributed to the personal and the local is, to your point, is very, very much, I think, what this time is about. And it can be described astrologically, but we're also really living it, you know. At seven o'clock every night, uh, all the hills in Portland are, the people are banging on pots and pans for for all of the doctors and nurses and ambulance drivers and Instacart deliverers and all the people who are on, you know, who, who are, the, the thread, the, the weft and the warp of how it is that we're staying together. And it's not top down at all. It's such an important question, Diane. I mean, what you're getting to, um, I'm, I'm with both of you. I mean, this, this shift from patriarchy, the shift into the age of Aquarius, into a sense of some union of the masculine and the feminine, you know, whatever that even means, right? I mean, we're always exploring this binary, but if, if we transcend the binary, there isn't the same need for the hero to become a malignant asshole <laughs> uh, before he gets destroyed and comes down. You know, I, I mean, I heard of somebody's suicide, a man's suicide this week. I don't want to get into too much of it, but just this feeling that if we raise people in this old idea of heroism, you get so far up into the sky like Icarus that when it's time to come down, you're just dead. There is no coming down without crashing at that point. 
And so if we keep raising our children, but ourselves, a society towards fame and the president, you know, then we get the assholes in leadership that we've got. And we get a culture that's completely out of alignment and, and, and entirely aligned with the wrong values. So again, I think it's this collective individual. Jung's also speaking in this to the coming of the age of Aquarius and the fundamental necessity for us to have strong egos, but not malignant narcissism, which in fact is an incredibly weak ego from, you know, um, but that's part of all this. It's we have to become individuals who then come back into the collective. That's, and this is what Jung gets to, and this is probably where, you know, we'll end today, but that the imitation of Christ is about the coming back. That the hero, the new hero, the, what Jung really means. I mean, again, we get into semantics here. It's like the, the, the former, blonde, blue-eyed, masculine, it's, that's what he's killing. We can't do that anymore. If we don't want endless perpetual war between men all over the planet and gun violence in our schools, we have to alter the definition of what we're all climbing towards. And it's not to be a mama's boy and never leave either. That system doesn't work. Somehow we have to become individuals who can see the collective and relationship. And that's the coming of the new hero. And again, that's why I'm obsessed with this book because I think it speaks to that in a stunning way by a man who could have gone in the other direction. Thank you, Diane, for your question. Yes, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sonia. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Carol. Happy Passover. Happy Easter. Um, Sending love to all of you in your homes. It's so rich and wonderful to be connected to all of you each week. So thank you again. Thank you. (laughs) We'll see you all soon. For more, please visit salomeinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this audio into a podcast, to the very talented Haley Hendricks for our intro and outro music, and to Ray Davis for our podcast art. We're grateful to all of you. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.